In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it is uh, St. Bartholomew's Sunday, and some 65 times now we've gathered as a parish family to keep our patron saint's feast, but we have never kept one quite like this. Just think about how much has happened to our little church just in the last, since last August, when we last kept St. Bartholomew's Day. Uh, there were, with the two hurricanes in the Gulf this week, I spent a lot of time thinking about storms, and this has been a year full of storms. The pandemic and the quarantine, that is a public health and welfare storm. Then the pandemic itself rippled throughout the world economy. That's a financial storm, a social storm of racial injustice and unrest, a political storm of, it began with impeachment, seems like it was 10 years ago, and it was just a few months ago. Impeachment, uh, the primaries, the the, uh, election that approaches in November, not to mention all of the literal meteorological storms like tornadoes and derechos and now a hurricane. And one thing about storms is that storms are revelatory. Storms can be revelatory. I remember uh, in 2005 driving around the Mississippi Gulf Coast where uh, my wife Renee is from and looking at damage from Hurricane Katrina. And as Nashville found out um, as we saw back in the spring, fierce wind can sometimes blow the side clean off a house. It can pull away the siding and you can see inside, see the actual skeleton of the house, the musculature, the structure, the bones, which beams are load-bearing and hold it up, or which beams have become rotten and actually threatened the integrity of the house before the storm ever came. This year's storms showed us a weakened church in the West. A weakened church, a once proud house, perhaps overbuilt, expanded to excess in its heyday, now it's sagging and with age, shoddy workmanship, threatening collapse. Back in, uh, in May, an article appeared in The Economist called The Sunday Slump, and it said this, it said one in five churches, one in five, or one in three in the main lines could close for good within the next 18 months, and that would represent a rapid acceleration of a long-term decline in American religiosity. Though a majority of churches have moved services online, many report failing levels of engagement. The longer parishioners endure a weekly struggle with tech and fail to attain the sense of connection that took them to church in the first place, the likelier they will be to give the whole thing a miss. A rapid acceleration of a long-term decline. That's the telling line, because this did not happen overnight. Even in the decade from 2008 to 2018, the Episcopal Church lost fully one quarter of its worshiping population. 
If a church is just a, 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 a club that we go to on a Sunday, then when the clubhouse is shuttered, there's nothing that binds us to it. So we may remember 2020, the 65th year of our parish, as a pivotal year because of those storms, the storms that pulled off the side of our house and showed us what lay beneath. But here's my question. Could not we remember 2020 for something altogether different? Because while the storms were raging, we have not been idle. We have lamented together. David and musicians and, and Bev and the liturgists have driven us toward lament in the psalms and the songs of our worship. We've repented together in the, the, the prayers that we pray every Sunday, in the, um, the litany that we've prayed every Wednesday for repentance, for racial reconciliation and justice. But what you may not know is that while we lamented and while we repented, we began to dream together. The staff, the vestry, and the wardens and I have prayed for wisdom, we prayed for ears to hear God's voice, and for courage to follow the sound of it, to chase this vision of God, that God has for this church in 2020 and in the years beyond. So today, as your rector on our patron feast, I want to begin a conversation about that vision about where God is calling us in the aftermath of this year of storms, because these crises are actually also opportunities for us. They can be a fire in which God melts us and then begins to reform us into who God wants us to be. So 2020 can be, it, it, it is, I think, a chance for us to reset, a chance indeed to replant St. Bartholomew's as a parish church. So that's what this homily is about. And I want to shift our metaphor, um, shift the central image from a house to a different structure. And I want to suggest that in this time of resetting and replanting, God's vision for us is actually a ship. So in your bulletins, I think around page 8, um, there should be uh, also on the screen for you at home a picture of this ship. Uh, yours doesn't have cool little red Greek words on it, but mine does. But it's a picture of a ship, and not just any ship, it's a particular kind. This ship is called a bark, B-A-R-Q-U-E. It's from a, a Celtic word, uh, an old word that meant ship, where we get the word barge. And a bark is a vessel with three or more masts, those large wooden spars that are, that are planted down the center line of a ship. And the more masts, the more sails, the better sailing quality, because you have more maneuver, maneuverability, more carrying capacity, more speed. And I picked three masts because of something that I once read that was written by a pope on Christmas Day. In, 2005 in his first encyclical called uh, Deus Caritas Est, or God is Love, then Pope Benedict 
said that, he said something that stuck with me. He said that the church's deepest nature, what she is in her deepest nature, is expressed in her threefold responsibilities. So three responsibilities, three sales. For St. Bartholomew's, these core responsibilities of the church are the sails of the ship. And so what I plan to do is over the next three Sundays to unpack uh, each Sunday to preach about one of the sails. So today, just let me give you the broad schematic of the ship, just a broad outline of, of our bark. And the first sail, the one in the front, is evangelism. So evangelism, a simple definition of evangelism could be sharing the good news of the reign of Christ with those who are not experiencing it. Sharing the good news of the reign of Christ with those who are not experiencing it. But why start with that? Why make that our foremost sale? Why begin or open with evangelism? Well, for one thing, that's where Christians come from. I mean, the, the disciples went out into the world armed with this story, with the good news, the evangel, a story about Jesus. And when they told it and people heard it, they began to reorder, reorient their lives completely around the truth of this story. They lived for it. Some of them died for it. It was at the center of their lives. And so let's put it at the center of our lives. Let it be the the. the indwelling narrative that we live our lives around. But another reason to start with evangelism is because we inside the church need the evangel, the good news, as much as the people outside of our walls. I am, I'm concerned. I'm concerned that uh, with a, a church that is more focused, seems more focused on position and influence and rights than we are on the flourishing of our neighbors. We are so quick to forget the grace that got us in here in the first place, to forget the gospel. But this is not new. I mean, there's a place in uh, Galatians where Paul gets sideways with Peter. These two giants of the faith, saints of the church, come into conflict. And the reason was that St. Paul says that when Peter came to Antioch, he had to oppose him because up until then, Peter had been eating with the Gentiles. So Peter, a Jew, was eating with Gentiles, people that the Jews believed were unclean. He was not keeping the law. He was free from the law. He believed the gospel. But when Peter realized that Jews were watching him, then he stopped eating with his Gentile friends. He pulled back, and Paul saw it. Paul said, when he rebukes him, he said that they were not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. Peter had forgotten the gospel. St. Peter needed to hear the gospel again. Even Peter needed the evangel. And sometimes we need to be evangelized as well, to hear the gospel inside here to remember the grace that got us here as much as the world does out there. So more on that next Sunday. But our first sale is evangelism. Second sale, the tallest one, the one right in the middle, is diakonia. It's, it's serving the poor, service. 
That's our central sail because that's the one that Jesus says will be graded on. Remember the, the story in Matthew 25? When did we see you hungry and feed you? Thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you naked and clothe you? Or sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, whenever you did it to the least of my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. It's as simple as that. Jesus won't judge us on the soundness of our doctrine. He will not judge us on how often we go to church, how outspoken we are about our faith, not even with the integrity of our moral life. We will be judged on how we love the least and the lost and the lonely. As a replant, I want St. Bees to be famous for our hospitality, for how well we love our neighbors, our servants. Uh, in the gospel in a pluralist society, Leslie Newbigin says that if the gospel is to challenge the public life of our society, if Christians are to occupy the high ground which they vacated in the noontime of modernity, it will not be by forming a Christian political party or by aggressive propaganda campaigns it will only be by movements that begin with the local congregation in which the reality of the new creation is present, known and experienced, and from which men and women go into every sector of public life to claim it for Christ. But that will only happen as and when local congregations renounce an introverted concern for their own life and recognize that they exist for the sake of those who are not members as sign, instruments, and foretaste of God's redeeming grace for the whole life of society. We exist for the sake of others. That's what will drive our service. So more on that in a couple of weeks. So the first sale is evangelism. Second sale is service. And then finally, the, the third and final sale will be worship, liturgy. We, we love liturgy. All, uh, uh, St. Bees loves it. All Episcopalians love our worship. Liturgy is that word for worship, and it just means the work of the people. Because the primary work of the church of God is worship. It is ascribing worth to God. So, remember in Luke 14, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. This is his triumphal entry that we read about every Holy Week on, on Passion Sunday, Palm Sunday. And so he's coming in on a, on a donkey into the city where he'll be crucified in a week's time. And St. Luke describes the scene like this. He says, as Jesus was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell him to stop. Tell your disciples to stop. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Worship 
It's what the universe is for. All of creation, every single creature from sentient beings to stones, all of them are created to praise and glorify God, humans foremost. So our worship is what we do when we rehearse the story of our salvation in the Eucharist, when we let prayer suffuse all of our life in our homes. We give voice to every creature under heaven, praising God from whom all blessings flow. Those are the sails of our bark, of our ship. Evangelism, service, and worship. We're not quite done. So I, I know by, usually by 15 minutes we're circling up. Just give me one other minute. Um, because I want you to notice two more things about the ship. The first thing is that sails don't fly themselves. Sails need those masts, the spars, down the center line. To, to hold up the sails so the sails can catch the wind and, and go where, where the ship is blown. And for the church, every mast of every sail is formation. It is Christian formation from the smallest of us to the eldest of us. Alan Jacobs is um, he's a distinguished professor of humanities at Baylor and uh, an author and uh, kind of public intellectual teacher. He teaches uh, English literature, literary critic. Uh, and he wrote on his blog back in April, I think. He said, we're looking here at the consequences of decades of neglect by American churches. And what they've neglected is Christian formation. The whole point of discipleship is to take what Kant called the crooked timber of humanity and make it, if not straight, then straighter. To form it in the image of Jesus Christ. God calls us to be Christians, to be little Christs, to look and sound and, and smell like Jesus to the world around us. And that means that we all have to be reformed. We have to have counter catechesis to change us from the way that we are right now, to be formed into the shape that God wants us in. And then finally, the last part of the ship, the part that the rest of it rests on, that keeps the ship afloat, that all the, the passengers and the cargo, the reason they stay safe is because of the hull of the ship. And the hull of our ship is each other. It is our, our hands and our hearts and our arms bound together form the hull of our ship. None of us is called to this work alone. In fact, if you are here at St. Bartholomew's, it is because you have an indispensable task. For us to navigate the rough waters of the world, we need each other to crew and to navigate and to keep watch and to labor together to do the work God's given us to do. One last point. The word bark has been around the church a long time. Uh, it, it, sometimes the Roman Catholic Church will be called the bark of St. Peter, the apostle who was a fisherman and became the first bishop of Rome. Uh, as early as the second century, uh, Tertullian, who's the, the founder of Western theology, said that that little ship did present a figure of the church. That is, 
She is disquieted in the sea, that is, in the world, by the waves, that is, by persecutions and temptations. The Lord, through patience, sleeping as it were, until roused in their last extremities by the prayers of the saints, he checks the world and restores tranquility to his own. Listen. I know what I'm asking you to do. I know what I'm inviting you to, because I'm inviting you on this, on this voyage. But sailing is not safe. It's never safe. John Augustus Shedd was uh, an American author and uh, professor. And back in 1928, he wrote a little book of, of, um, of adages, these proverbs, little pithy sayings about truth. And one of them went something like this. When it is rose leaves all the way, we soon become drowsy. Thorns are necessary to wake us. We have strength for today's work. If yesterday's is added, we stagger. If we try to carry tomorrow's, down we go. And then here comes the money line. A ship in harbor is safe. But that's not what ships are built for. The months and the years to come may bring more dangerous waters than we've seen before, more treacherous waves. But that is why God has called us, each of us, will commit ourselves to doing three things well, evangelism, service, and the worship of God with reckless abandon. Each of those tasks supported by Christian formation and each of us on, in the vessel supported and buoyed up by the strong arms of community. That is the bark of St. Bartholomew. So, let's go to sea. On this St. Bartholomew's Day, that is your invitation. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.